Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about bipartisanship. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. In breaking news on Tuesday evening, the Washington Post made headlines with, with news that the Manhattan DA's office, led by District Attorney Cyrus Vance, had convened a grand jury in the criminal probe into former President Donald Trump's pre-presidential business dealings, which Vance and his team have been investigating for two years. The news of this grand jury comes a week after the New York Attorney General's office announced they would also be pursuing a criminal probe into the Trump Organization in addition to their current civil probe. This grand jury will convene for three days a week for the next six months and will likely hear other cases beyond just the Trump probe. During this time, they will hear evidence from the district attorney's office as a result of their criminal investigation, and this development indicates that they believe they have evidence of a crime by the former president, someone close to him, or his company. Caleb Terrell, many people in President Trump's circle have been investigated and indicted for crimes associated with both his business dealings and his 2016 presidential campaign, but he has continued to evade all mechanisms of accountability, both before he was in office, um, as well as through his both of his impeachments, and now as he's been out of office. What are your thoughts on this development, and what do you think this means for the former president and his expected bid for the White House in 2024? Well, I, I think this is uh, probably a pretty uh, big threat. Um, to the former president, especially if he's trying to run for the White House in 2024. Um, it's pretty rare that a district attorney's office and then a state attorney kind of team up on something. That means that this is probably pretty serious. And I am looking forward to see uh, what, as kind of more news about this comes out, what exactly they are investigating and what crimes the former president may have committed, especially in New York. That was short, sweet, to the point. Um, I don't have as much of a uplifting view. I can't help but think about the Gerald Ford doctrine that a president, whether sitting or not, cannot be indicted, um, cannot be held accountable in this country because of the optics and the looks, right? We invaded countries for less. Um, additionally, I'm assuming this is going to be something around tax evasion, tax fraud, something from a financial piece and no disrespect to the Trumpian base, but they don't understand those laws well enough to really care. So um, unless they, the DA is really going to make an effort to indict and imprison the first American president in history, um, it's not going to change anything over half uh republicans reporting right now still think that donald trump is president so yeah no hope no faith well wait a second it might change something because if he's in jail he can't run for president in 2024 if the da makes that effort i will i will sit and watch but i don't i don't believe that our country is in a space where such an action can happen I, so I will offer a little bit more context around this because I am someone who's been been following this. So this actually comes. So there, these are separate things, Caleb. Just to clarify uh, on your comment that this is he is facing possible charges from the Manhattan DA's office, mm -hmm. who has been had a cr criminal probe for the past two years, and then also separately and possibly additionally charges that could come out of the now criminal probe at the New York the New York Attorney General's office at the state level. Um, however, mm -hmm. this uh, this grand jury convening is coming on the heels of so cyrus vance is obviously a very well-known da he does not play games he's not someone who actually goes to a grand jury in which unless he has the case mm -hmm. uh he is a an attorney well known for having the case and getting his indictments if he's going bringing it to a grand jury but this is after him winning the case through the supreme court and getting access to trump's tax documents so no one has ever before no one in in government or in law has ever had this much information about the trump organization's financial dealings mm -hmm. so not not ever both in his bank all six bankruptcies before um through now so i i think that um just just one from who it is cyrus vance uh who has a storied career of being have, having great integrity but also not not doing frivolous lawsuits and not pursuing frivolous indictments Absolutely. um but also that with the new evidence of his, of his tax documents that that they got access to and now this coming months after that i have a feeling that 
this is likely going to come not maybe not in charges for the for the former president but perhaps people in his circle or his his business i i agree and again to my point i think i think there are, it's a three-legged stool let's say i think that we are not a country that has a precedent or is able to set a precedent for imprisoning a former leader we also um I expect this to be tax evasion, at least to some extent. Yeah. And that as a a um, charge in this country never really sets the stage of something like murder or a, a grand theft of sorts. Even though this individual is stealing from the U.S. government, average Americans just don't care about those type of charges. Um, and finally... I don't know, though. I don't know, though, when it comes to tax evasion specifically. I mean, I look think at that that's where his uh, base could Blade. have an issue. What's his that. name? What's his name? Blade. Wesley Snipes. Look at Wesley Snipes. Arrested for tax evasion. Served his time. Got out. Back in movies. No one even cares. He's actually the butt of a lot of jokes. That's Trump is already the butt of jokes. I just don't think it's going to change for him. And the, and for the last point, the, the third piece, right, is... Um, over half of Republicans still believe he is president. They still think he won the election. They are still in a mindset that everything that's happening to him right now is a Democratic attempt to smear him, to make him illegitimate, this and that. The narrative for him is set where he, in my opinion, is like Harry Potter underneath um, the cloak. He is unseeable, untouchable until he decides he wants to be. I think it's somewhere in between both you and Torrance's idea because I think some people will care, but I don't know if it'll be enough. Guys, the man's working with 46% of the vote. I mean, context matters. Also, I, it's not that I think I know anything. I just simply think that the evidence points towards something being different than in the past. That's all really that I believe. Because hmm. no one's ever gotten this close. To, to possibly indicting him. I'm interested to yeah. see. Also, we already know what's in his tax returns because the New York Times reported it. I mean, I don't know if y'all read it, so I don't want to project that. Upon yeah, y'all. yeah. No, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. But that's all, you know, the the fake news media, as his base would put it. Yeah. And that's what's going to be reported mm-hmm. through the DA. Like, I, I, I really genuinely think that for a person like yourself, Torrance, who understands law and is a part of the legal profession, and I respect immensely... Yes, this matters. Uh, myself, who follows these things, Caleb, you, for people like us, this matters. But when I think you get to the crux of it, when you get to the the real people who matter, uh, not the real people who matter, that's an inappropriate way of saying it, but the, the ones who vote on that side for him, I, I personally feel that you will find they don't care. The narrative is set that anything that hits him is just a smear. If he comes out and calls it fake news, they're going to cheer and um, it, it, I just don't have faith that our judicial system will actually indict a former president. But I think that's fair. And one last thing before we move on. Like, I don't know if the expectation here should be to convince his base that he's broken the law or that he's a bad person. I mean, if that base shows up, he will win another election more than likely. Yes, but, well, maybe, but also if there's an indictment here, like, that's going to be spelling trouble for him no matter what, even if the base doesn't care. Torrance is chopping at the bit, so I'm going to let him get the last word. <laughs> no, 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 no. Actually, I have nothing else. I have nothing else. I, I, It's not something, I mean, like I said, I don't have a, I don't think I know what's going to happen. I simply uh, am looking at the writings on the wall, and, and, and I'm like you, I'm waiting to see what's going to happen to see if the... If Cyrus Vance is just the only thing that I think I have is really understanding his career and, and mm-hmm. the cases that he's argued before and that he is someone who's about justice and pursues things, what the, pursues what the law tells him to do. Mm-hmm. And if the law points him towards and his investigation points him towards indicting the, the you know the president and, and presenting evidence to a grand jury to do so now will the grand jury decide to do so that is the real that's the real question but mm-hmm. do I, I think that he is someone who believes he has the evidence if he's bringing it to them also let's not forget the um doj can still step in at any point in time as they are currently 
appealing a decision from a court to release the documents for why um, he wasn't charged with obstruction of justice. So just other context mm-hmm. to add into this yeah. as well. Um, jumping on to some global news per BBC, the UK warns of a Targray famine in months. Um, populations in northern Ethiopia are in a catastrophic situation as conflicts continue to take on the region. Destruction of their infrastructure and farming tools have continued to impoverish the region and lead to some real hard opportunities for them to to really exist and live in their area. Special Envoy on Famine Prevention, Nick Dyer, highlights a growing health crisis as well that poses an equal threat to their starvation. One noteworthy thing um, that I saw on Twitter, um, per CNN actually, is that British Black Lives Matter activist Sasha Johnson remains in critical condition following a gunshot wound to the head. Um, Police remain in the early stages of their investigation and have yet to find any evidence that point to this being a targeted attack. But it is noteworthy that um, Sasha was found not too far from a house party and um, a lot of members of the Black Lives Matter Black Lives Matter movement in London have highlighted that she's received some significant threats to her life and to her safety. Um, many in London are starting to call for accountability and transparency as the police continue to work through um, that situation. Lastly, um, like I've highlighted before, I really appreciate taking some time to just highlight what's going on around the world. And I think most notably, something that Caleb Torrance and I have even talked about is this current situation with the EU and Belarus. Um, Back on Sunday, if I remember correctly, an airliner was flying over Belarus and was forced to make an emergency um, landing due to reports of a bomb threat on said plane. Um, The Belarus government sent in fighter jets to help bring them down. And as the plane descended and landed at the capital, what was interesting is those reports turned out to be false. And the Belarus police actually, or their government, actually moved in to go on board of that aircraft and arrest and the former editor and op- and former founder of an opposition blog um, due to his critiques of the government. So in response, the EU has actually been pushing for um, EU-based airlines to avoid all Belarusian airspace as we move forward. And it's becoming a growing issue for the already struggling bloc following Brexit. Um, to just identify how are they protecting their member nations, and especially how are they protecting individual citizens as this was a commercial flight. So taking it over to the whole Israel-Palestinian conflict, um, just to keep our audience updated as we have been the last couple of weeks, Israel and Hamas have agreed to a ceasefire as of last week. The U.S. is currently looking to bolster the ceasefire and to work with the U.N. to rebuild Gaza and make sure humanitarian aid makes it to the Palestinians whose lives have been upended by the conflict. Of course... This is a terrible event that happened. Lots of people, especially innocent civilians, lost their lives um, on the Palestinian side, especially. Um, And our hearts go out to everyone that um, was affected by this or family that has been lost in this. Um, Quickly, Terrell and Torrance, uh, do you have anything you want to say about this conflict or any takes that you want to make with the ceasefire and what the U.S. is doing? Yeah, I would I would like to take the opportunity to, just because I haven't been here to discuss it over the past two weeks. But um, obviously, this is a great thing that that there's a cease, ceasefire, and I do applaud the the Biden administration for um, their quiet diplomacy. I myself was having um, a lot of frustrated feelings uh, with the way that he was handling the conflict, especially the public facing comments and the press releases out of his administration. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that after you know his his remarks at uh, the press conference after meeting with President Moon from uh, South Korea, where he addressed some of some of the conversations on the background of that diplomacy, um, I think that he kind of put a cap more on uh, on the way that he's going to go about his diplomatic style, which I think does not break with how he has done it for the past you know fifty years of his career. Uh, mm-hmm. However, I think that he can imp- he can improve in the way that he he had his public facing comments were too appeasing to Israel. I mean, I think that in 
in a number of the days throughout that throughout the conflict um, that his public statements were emboldening them, and then also are are stopping the UN um, resolution to call for an immediate ceasefire. Also, I think embolden embolden uh, Bibi Netanyahu, and so I, I think that I, I do applaud him for how he has he, his. Dipl- diplomatic style has handled this in the background in such a short uh, period of, of rapid fire, because obviously this is a lot shorter than it was um, in 2014. However, I think that he's taking, he's taking the right steps in wanting to, in wanting to be greatly involved in, in rebuilding Gaza and helping the Palestinian people um, because he understands that when, when they are in need and when they are in strife, that is when Hamas uh, has the opportunity to grow its power among the mm-hmm. Palestinian people. Um, but I'd like to see a more uh, forthright posture from 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 the United States and how we are going to push Israel to a specific two state solution because Bibi has moved away from a two state solution, being pro a two state solution, and I don't think mm-hmm. there that there is a solution without a two state solution. I know that that is uh, the Biden administration's position on this as well, and I know that Secretary of State Tony Blinken um, is is there right now and in pursuing those exact things. Uh, but I think that our our public posture across the board and the conversation has to be more nuanced um, um, in our public policy debate and our foreign policy debate. Absolutely. But yes. Happy to see the ceasefire. Yeah, absolutely. I echo your points, Torrance. And I, I think we might've highlighted this in the last pod, or I might be mixing this up with some conversations we've had offline, but I really do want to applaud the use of this new quiet, diplo- not new, but quiet diplomacy um, from the Biden administration, especially when we've, come off of several administrations that really understood the posture of using the podium and uh, taking some opportunities to say things on that stage in hopes of guiding and forcing um, certain things to happen internationally. I really appreciate that this administration is looking at, one, how do we continue to rebuild relationships after the former administration? But two, how do we not only rebuild those relationships to the standard that they were before that administration, but move them forward in an understanding of decency and, and cooperation and collaboration? Additionally, um, I've been kind of keeping my eyes peeled on Israeli politics and something noteworthy that I appreciate from all of this, right, is a lot of media outlets were crediting Netanyahu with helping stoke some of this aggression um, in hopes of forcing another election or changing some of the um, potential forming of the government agreements. And in striking this agreement, a lot of uh, commentators anticipated that this would turn out to be a, a pro for him and lead to some movements of another election. However, I'm actually seeing that there was some extra political posturing that is one good because the agreement was made, but two good as Torrance mentioned um, that you're seeing the forming of a government really looking at a two state solution and looking at how can we be more um, I won't say inclusive because that doesn't feel right in this space, but more thoughtful in the forming of the government and not as radical as Netanyahu's um, reign, if you will. Taking it over to climate news, um, per Bloomberg, extreme climate has displaced more people than conflicts in 2020. By the end of 2020, a record 55 million people were forced to move due to these events. Most of these climate migrants moved within their own um, borders and records are said to be largely underestimated. Most people displaced by climate events were in Asia, with the most being in China, while the U.S. alone had nearly 2 million people displaced by one of the most ferocious Atlantic hurricane seasons on record. Obviously, Torrance and Terrell, climate events are becoming more extreme and frequent as global warming continues to get worse. What are your quick takes on this story? We'll start with you, Torrance. It's honestly going to be pretty quick because I've spoken about it before, and I think that we need to be forward-looking about it. But all of these, all of these fights about borders, about you know the the, the you know I think about the conflicts in um, in the Middle East, both in between you know Palestine and Israel, is that at the end of the day, Mother Nature does not give a shit, and the Earth does not give a shit, and <laughs> we are going to be stuck here on this planet together with all of the circumstances that we have created for ourselves based on the human impact on our environment and our our, our lack of will to do anything about it. 
that we better just prepare for that because our borders are going to not just go away. They're going to go away because they're going to be underwater. And what are we going to do about those people? Just let them drown? No. So as we're looking toward the future of the society that we're going to have on planet Earth, we're going to have to keep in mind that this is going to be a continuing issue mm-hmm. and that we need to worry about our environment. We also need to worry about what's going to be happening to people because of our inaction on the environment. No, I echo everything that Torrance said. Um, and I, I've been having some interesting conversations with um, an acquaintance specifically about where climate fits into our industry, our infrastructure, all of these uh, like proponents and things and how we've always benchmarked. Like at one point in time, it was said that by 2020, we were going to be um, carbon neutral. And obviously we never matched that. Right. But I, I'm really intrigued by this idea that the automotive automotive industry is looking to move towards a um, a, a no fuel or gasoline lineup by 2030, and that we actually truly might have the infrastructure to pull that off. And with those in mind, I can't stress enough that meeting that threshold or meeting that barrier is a step in the right direction to prevent everything that um, you highlighted in your story, Caleb. And it's just very critical that the naysayers and the ones who think that it's not possible or that we, we need to slow walk progress, kind of just take a back seat, honestly, get out of the car at this point, if we're going to use that analogy, Mm -hmm. because we need to start moving in that direction. If we don't want to see the catastrophic, um, human issues that might that will come from climate uh, disruption So guys, politics lately has been a lot of uh, will they or won't they with bipartisanship between the legislative branch, uh, specifically the Senate and the Biden administration, who uh, vowed uh, both in his campaign and in his inauguration speech to pursue bipartisanship, um, but has made it pretty clear, though, uh, since taking office that he will not do so at the stake at the at the stake of, excuse me, um, possibly not meeting the moment with the actual right policies. Um Right now, we're seeing everything from a bipartisanship conversation around the infrastructure talks, the January 6th commission, whether or not they, the Senate will end up passing that after it has passed with the bipartisanship um, from the House with 35 Republicans de- um, defecting. Uh, and then down to actual bipartisanship in bills from like Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York um, that is looking at. Uh, sexual assault in the military. But most of the conversations around bipartisanship or the lack thereof rather um, have been in regard to the January 6th commission. Like I just stated, um, it did pass the House with 35 Republicans voting for it. uh, But that was after the House Minority Leader, uh, Congressman McCarthy, came out against it um, after originally being for it and actually deputizing uh, Representative Katko from New York uh, to pursue what they wanted in this commission. Um, And then also now with Senate Minority Leader McConnell coming out against it, um, we know that, again, like every other piece of legislation that we want, um, faces an uphill battle in the Senate because of the filibuster. Um, So, guys, I wanted to kind of have an open roundtable conversation about, uh, one, do we think that uh, this continued pursuit of bipartisanship is either smart or... um, or if it's kind of just naive because we've got such bad faith actors on the Republican Party um, at most turns, it seems like. Um, and then second, do we think that any of it's going to yield any fruit? I'll just start by saying that I think bipartisanship is a nice idea until it isn't. You have Republicans screaming about bipartisanship, right? And the Biden White House genuinely wants to see if that'll work. And even though they have expanded the definition of bipartisanship to not just meaning working with Uh, Republicans in Congress and whatnot, but also um, Republicans as in the masses that agree with policies and whatnot, along with Democrats. Um, I I think that like the Biden administration, and I know this isn't directly at this commission, but I think the Biden administration um, should, I think a lot of people like the idea of bipartisanship, and I think they should continue to pursue that until it just doesn't make like economical sense for them to continue to do that anymore with a given um, initiative or policy or whatever. Um, Mm. In the commission, 
the commission's interesting because yes, there probably should be Republicans on that commission, right? And Kevin McCarthy literally I don't remember the congressman who is who is there to like kind of negotiate, but the the guy got like a lot of what Republicans wanted from this commission and, and then Kevin McCarthy just went completely back on it. Well, yeah, yeah, and let me let's provide some some facts around around the commission for for listeners. So the commission that's in this the commission as it's been agreed upon between uh, for this bill that passed the House is there would be a 10 person commission with each party getting an equal number of appointments and subpoena power. So they would each, each appoint five. They would not be members of Congress. They would, they would, they can't be members of Congress rather, uh, which is, which is, I think a really important uh, piece to this commission. Um, and they also have equal veto power on subpoenas um, and certain endeavors. And so it also limits. And I think this is where the issue comes in for, for McCarthy most specifically is that the, the language around it is that it's pursuing the facts and circumstances of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, as well as the influencing factors that may have provoked the attack on our democracy, end quote. Um, so they basically got everything out of the Democrats that they wanted. Um, I just think that they realize that this is not good. This is not good politics for them when it comes to the midterms. I think that McCarthy himself would be, would be worried that if they're following the facts, that they would have to um, subpoena him to testify about his conversations with the president on January 6th. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that it would be, uh, it's going to be wholly, um, it's, it's going to be a huge political issue for them to, to, to ha- for us to relitigate what they said the day after January 6th um, about the president's liability in the insurrection to now. And I think that that's why they want to vote against it, not necessarily about anything else. Like Terrell said, their base believes that Donald Trump is still president. But why? Why is it a political grenade for them? They no, See, here's the thing. I'm not sure... If it would have been, I actually think it would have been their opportunity to ditch the cancer on their party had they pursued this in an altruistic way. But I think that they believe that it is a political bomb for them. But also, I mean, the evidence kind of, I mean, you asked that question like in a way that suggests like maybe like you don't believe that's the case. But I mean, they, these, these, these people have went back and forth on what they have said from, from January 6th to now um, yeah. in, in a hypocritical way that is, un, that is inexplicable. Um, and so, I mean, I think it probably is. But I, I think you, you bring up a good point, right? Like, yes, they've gone back and forth, blah, 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 blah. They could get rid of their cancers. Nah. But at its crux, what happened on January 6th that is politically damaging to the Republican Party and what what could possibly come out that would infuriate or turn their base off so much that they would lose an election, right? Like, I, I think Torrance, you're right on the money that the the rank and file follow under McCarthy here because they feel or they view this as some sort of threat, right? But what what's going to come out of the the commission? Are they going to find out that Donald Trump helped organize and orchestrate the whole thing? Are they going to find out that there was a larger cover-up? Like, if you don't believe those things are true, right, you know that a group of people unplanned to some extent, but also planned to a a broader extent, attack the Capitol, but there's no direct connection to the former president of the United States intervening or... um, members of Congress having involvement, why then are you so concerned with a conversation about an actual attack? Why do you need to dilute it with Antifa rhetoric or anti-democracy rhetoric? Why, what is the threat to the Republican Party here? Like as a genuine because question. they don't believe that Terrell. What do you mean? I mean, well, because they but don't. I mean, right? Base. Because they don't. That's the answer. They they don't believe that. They know it's bullshit. They know what happened. They will know what contributed to it. They know that it's quite possible that some members of their caucus ha- helped give tours to people who then were insurrectionists the next day. So I mean, it's because they know damn well that they have a culpability in it, and that's why. Yes. So that's my point. Why aren't we talking about that? So we're having a conversation here about why they aren't voting and and this and that left and right um, and how we're upset with the fact that they they aren't allowing this and how they even had a, a push to investigate and broaden the scope, blah. 
But why aren't we talking about the fact that when you look at the plain Jane bare bones of what the commission is there to do, it's there to look at one specific day. How did people break into our capital and try to seize power from the American government in that moment? If you look at that exclusively, why aren't we having a better conversation around why would that scare a Republican Party? Well, I think that we are having that conversation. I mean, I, I believe that that's the conversation that, that I'm having. It's one that we're having. It's the one that I'm seeing covered on on the media. Because, I mean, I, I don't think people are buying these arguments that they're making about, about the commission because it's just simply not true. The commission has pretty plain language and, and tells you what it's going to be and tells you what the makeup is. And anyone willing to look it up uh, would, would find that out. However... We're not, we're not that, that this is a part of the issue right is them voting against it is not necessarily like crazy right because of the circumstances but it's rather another an, another thing pointing towards the demise of our democracy at the, at the hands of this republican party and the danger that they are to our democracy because it's a continue like 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 facts have been dissolved and patriotism has is dissolving before our eyes and like when you when you don't have like a, a good social structure for facts in a democracy and when you don't have accountability that is what brings a democracy down. And the former president has evaded every every point of accountability. This party continues to, to not hold him accountable. Um, they, they've continued to perpetuate a lie about, about the election being stolen and overwhelming fraud that mm-hmm. has not been pointed to be true. They do not believe the, the rule of law when 60-something you know, judges in courtrooms have said that that's not the case. I mean, it's because it points towards something so much more, so much more insidious and scary as an outcome for our democracy that I think it, it does merit pushing the point of like how ridiculous some of these decisions are, especially this opposition to the commission. I mean, I, I think it's just for the sake of not losing hope on the, on that front, but it's, yeah, it's very frustrating. Let's not forget that, that the rioters that, that stormed the Capitol on January 6th were also trying to kill some of them. <laughs> they wanted mm-hmm. to kill Mike. They wanted to hang Mike Pence and they to kill Nancy I mean, Pelosi. Exactly. That's just where the Republican Party is. It's their base. And Kevin McCarthy and a lot of other Republicans, but as as a leader, Kevin McCarthy continuously falls prey to the base. And so that's why you see Liz Cheney being ousted from the party. That's why you see him suddenly turning around on the commission out of nowhere. I think where where I'm coming from here is this shouldn't be politically devastating for them, right? If you look at the bare bones, what it is investigating what happened on January 6th should not be devastating. But it, I'm not so sure about that. It, uh, yeah, I think I disagree with that. Tucker Carlson but, can and go this on is, air this is my, badly about Republicans and get them all voted off. But this is my point. So we're, and maybe I'm just starting to move into the centralist lane in here, but here we are. We're saying that the people who attack the Capitol are the Republican base. And we're we're giving that label, which is fair, as they were all wearing MAGA hats. But what, two months ago, we were making an argument that maybe the political or the Republican Party was on the, the crux of a split. What if we allowed that narrative to change and stop na- stop calling it and stop hammering it as that's their base? And we call them what they are. They were crazy. They were insurrectionists. They were this. They were that. Da, 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 da. Is that the only reason this is politically devastating for the Republican Party? And if it is, is there an opportunity for us as the public or media or um, individuals to set a different narrative or do a little bit of a paradigm shift that allow for some of that opportunity of saying, yes, there were crazy people who were there, but... This isn't politically devastating because that is not your base. That is the 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 loud minority who decided to do something wild. Let's attack that. Well, I want to I want to clarify that I wasn't when I say that this is the Republican base. I wasn't saying necessarily that the insurrectionists are the Republican base. Well, some of them are part of the base. Um, not all of them mm-hmm. probably think the capital. Uh, so what not all of them would go to the Capitol and storm the Capitol. But my point is, is that a lot of the Republican Party, the base of Donald Trump, believes that he is still the president and furthers this big lie that the insurrectionists were there in the first place for. 
that's my point of what the base is. So I think it could be devastating to an extent, depending on what the commission does. Right. And I think that a lot of this has to do with them protecting being primaried more than anything that they, they have to like the, the base is consequential enough. The Trump base is consequential enough for them to lose a primary. Now that could be a, I think an, an incredibly stupid decision for the Republican party in that regard, because those, when they've done that in the past and a lot of, in a lot of seats that, that that person who won the primary and beat out the incumbent has turned around and not won in the general because of how far right they are. Mm -hmm. However, I think that, I think that we're in an extremely volatile political climate right now. And I think that they don't, I think people don't know what to do because they're seeing like, I think that what's happening in the Republican party right now and the continued support uh, for, for Donald Trump and for um, the big lie, I think is a, con a confusing signal for anyone who may be uh, opposed to ma the magoing of the party, um, but, but doesn't want to lose their seat. Uh, but, you know, we digress. Uh, yeah, and also quick update. Uh, I know we're focused on the House right now, but um, Senator Murkowski has come out in favor of the commission in the Senate, so there's some progress there. I guess I'm just so where has, I'm. So has Mitt Romney. I guess where I'm struggling specifically here is I feel like this is their scapegoat. We're easy. We're quick to say this is politically devastating for the Republicans if it goes forward. We're quick to say that they're going to have to investigate their own base. And I, I have no love lost for McCarthy, and I don't give him any relishes. But when it's addressed like that, when you are the leader of the party, one of the leaders of the party, how then are you supposed to move forward appropriately if? the narrative and the headwinds are all directed at you to say, well, yeah, you're investigating your own. It's inherently going to be damaging. Your job is to try not to do that. I guess I'm struggling here of how do we get to the, the 1950s media outlets where here are the facts. Here are the things you are looking at. Let's stop imposing all of these other pieces that make it so detrimental for us to move forward, especially as we're speaking on bipartisanship. And we see uh, bills that make common sense that have broad support. They aren't failing because the bill is, is bad. They're failing because other things are being tacked onto them to make them seem as though they would be devastating to one party or another. Who's going to attack me first? I'm ready. I'm waiting. I just don't disagree. I just, I don't agree. I, 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 no, I just don't agree with that assertion because like, I think that you frame it in this way that suggests that like, like these are not the arguments we're making. These are, this is the analysis of what, like of their deflection of it yes. and their, and their BS. Like, I don't think that like those should be taken to an, taken into account, right? Like I do think that the more intelligent perspective for the our position for the Republican Party to take would be to root out this these extremist uh, wings of the of the party. Like you know, like I do think that like pursuing the truth is what is is right, and usually what is right should be like politically advantageous. But I think they find themselves in a different political climate, and I, I do find it to be BS. But I don't mm -hmm. think anyone's making the argument to justify these excuses for them. I just think that this is the reality we find ourselves in, and that's the analysis I make of their refusal to even to even further negotiate on the commission i, I think that's just make what makes it so blatantly political i'm not saying that that's an excuse i'm saying that that's my analysis of the situation is that they are making it political for the sake of evading it and to qualify i'm not saying that we're justifying their excuse i'm saying we're giving them room to make said excuse i think that they're the that they have the space i don't know that we're making it for them even if we were, though, I, I really see the Republican Party as one that will make the space if it needs to. It always has to justify its own actions. They've continued to for the past five years. That's not exactly, you know. Longer than that, really. Also, Trump has said he does not want the commission. So, I mean, you know, that's what their 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 freaking king their uh, you know chosen one has said. So I'm sure that's what they're going with. Remember, a ton of their base believes he's still the president. Like their decisions yes. are going to be driven by a lot of that. And again, maybe I'm just giving the Republican Party a lifeline. But if that is where we if that is where our society genuinely views 
the current landscape, right, is Trump doesn't want this because Trump knows it's going to investigate the people that support him. As a narcissist, of course, he doesn't want his followers to dislike him. Um, if that just continues to be brandished, which justifiably he was a Republican president, but if that continues to be brandished as the Republican Party and it continues to be utilized as an opportunity to say, well, this and this is who you are. This binary begins to form. It's no longer a spectrum of where you fall in the party. It is you are this or you are that. How then does this party heal itself? How then does this party move forward when we as a society can be quick to say, well, yeah, the commission's going to do damage to them because they're going to have to in investigate the Trumpers. How do we allow for the conservative party to genuinely remove the Trumpers from itself? They don't want to. Well, wait a second here. Wait a second. Do they even have that opportunity? Who's not giving them the the opportunity, Terrell? I mean, like who, who, who's wand, who's Chuck Schumer wand has to be waived (laughs) to give them the opportunity to root out the extremism in their party. It is on them. The Republican Party chose this for themselves. We didn't allow them to make we those decisions. Debatable. We've not allowed that. When did they have responsibility for their actions? Why is it all of our fault? Why I'm not saying our. I'm not. I'm not saying it's y'all's fault. I'm not saying it's our fault. I also, you can make an argument. Republican Party technically I mean, didn't choose Trump for a different reason. But what I'm saying here is, if we operate in a binary, if we operate in a binary. Where is that? Where's the opportunity for the Republican Party to be something different? If we continue to move forward, if we continue to make these these same set of societal arguments, there is no space for this party of limited government, this party of people. Oh, another person that pops in my head is um, Megan McCain. It's no space for them to say, yes, but. Because we as a society have now forced them on a binary of there is no but. I just don't really believe that society is forcing them to make the decisions that they've made up to this point. And I think that their decision to, I don't know, maybe not have some of their members um, aid the insurrectionists, you know, vote for the commission. I think their decision to get out of this is on them. I don't think it's on us. Yeah, the the binary was created by a by a long line of decisions made by that party that created this more right-wing conservative and an extremist wing of the party while the conservative more moderate republican wing made a lot of decisions that enabled that wing of the party that has now grown and taken a larger portion of that party we keep on we keep on allowing certain conversations to be framed a certain way that allow them political I think ease in some conversations and we need to be better about the way that we message things. However, we are, I don't, I think that the, the binary exists based on their decisions, not on anything anyone else has, has done. Just like everything else. I'm sure there's a confluence of factors that, 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 uh, you know, confound themselves upon this scenario, but I do believe that it has a lot to do with their decisions, namely with, with uh, choosing Donald Trump as their 2016 presidential candidate. Well, I, I think that, I think that you have a point when it comes to, like, did we did did we as society get the Republican Party to where it is? I don't think so, but I think there are probably a couple underlying factors. If we go really deep into that analysis, that might have aided them to the to where they are now, and maybe maybe there's just some small factors that keep them where they are. But in the broad sense, the Republican Party made its own decisions to be where it is now, and. I don't see I don't really see any real effort of them trying to like heal itself and repair itself. Um and I don't really think it's media's or media's like society's fault that that they aren't willing to do that. Well, yes and they they've ignored media in society and what it seems like the majority has thought for a long time with their policy positions. Why is this any different? Well, 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 here's but, but well, I I just here's the thing though, they can successfully apparently take someone out of like root someone out of leadership that is not in line with these views, and this messaging out of their party. Why is it everyone else's like responsibility that they haven't been able to do that with the extremist wing of their party? It's because they do not want to. 
Liz Cheney represents a more moderate wing of the party, I mean, as far as non-extremism goes, because she's more conservative than a lot of these actual Trumpers, specifically, mm. you know, Elise Stefanik, but, but they had no problem pushing her out of leadership for not falling in lockstep with this with this part of the party. I don't know why it would, why, like, why there's any conversation around whether or not they want to root that out, because I don't think they do. They've embraced it fully. So I, I come back to how, how we got here. We got here on a space of, of, of what bipartisanship looks like. And, and the fact that there are glimpses and hopes, like you mentioned, Torrance, there's the, the sexual assault bill that is going through um, the Senate right now in committee, but having real conversations, you see the White House having an active role with a, a group of Republican senators to speak to infrastructure. And to a lot of our surprises, they are getting ready to roll out a $1 trillion um, bill. Where the reason I, I struggle here and I, I want to have this kind of conversation specifically on the binary is because I I think to the, the Obama years, the Tea Party takes shape um, as a legitimate, not legitimate, that's not the word I want, as a, a obstructionist wing that is against anything that the Obama Party does. And you see the Republican Party take that in because they agree with limited government. They agree that this administration is too progressive in quotation marks, but you see them have a struggle controlling them, but control them to some extent until John Boehner makes the egregious decision to meet with president Obama. And then he is forcibly removed essentially from speakership. Fast forward to um, 2016 election, you have this wide open um, presidential primary for the Republican Party. Everyone's kind of spectating that the Republican Party is in distress to some extent. And Donald Trump obviously wins that primary, not by a majority, but by a plurality, because he never won a lot of anything in that moment. Now we're in a space where the Tea Party and the Trumpers, I won't say are the same, but they have similar objectives. But your Liz Cheney's, your your um, Lisa Murkowski's, I'll throw Megan McCain in here because I brought her name up before. They still operate as the bulk of the base. However, they continue to have this narrative of we're being oppressed or we're struggling or we're having blah, 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 blah. And this binary that I highlight continues to be the narrative of, well, why is this commission detrimental for this party on its face? It's not. But when we start talking about, well, now they have to, they'll probably have to investigate one another. And, uh, uh, um, McCarthy might have to release his transcript of what his conversation was with Donald Trump. This might happen. We start setting it up as if, you can't have that moderate party, not because they're not allowing it, but because we as a society just don't have the functionality to see the Republican Party as more than just the Trump wing and then the not Trump wing. It's the same thing that the Democratic Party has always hated from the Republican Party of you're either a progressive or you're a centralist that the progressives are going to force out. And we struggle and we have a conversation of how we hate that narrative. We hate how it tanks some of our policies. We hate how it it has been used against us in multiple cycles. I feel like we're starting to do that to them. I'm not saying it's inappropriate, but I do think that it's causing the issues that we're seeing with bipartisanship. <laughs> I don't know if I agree. <laughs> you don't want well, to. No, I, it's, I just, I think that it's like a, like a lot of, it gives them a lot of leeway. Like it doesn't, it places a lot of the responsibility for these things on other people or other factors that I just don't think is, I just don't think is true. And, and 
traditionally the progressive wing is has been more pushed out of the democratic party than the moderate wing until as of recent politics and i just don't think it's i just don't think that they're commensurate but, i mean but has the narrative not been set for the democratic party that everything we do is socialist and progressive and has that not been a binary that the that the literal democratic party has forcibly had to fight just to get bills like the affordable care act passed yeah no that's not that's not untrue but i think that i think that like it, it, the, the point that you're making about the republican party and 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 enabling them with a with a message that that it creates a binary i just don't think is like is supported by the facts like I can see the Republican. I, I I tried for the past five years to see the Republican Party for a broader, more diverse party than what had been represented at the forefront by the by the former president and the modeling of his party. But I kept on seeing a bunch of those people that I thought to be more a moderate and and like pro-democracy Republicans make decisions that enabled that wing of the party, that enabled that president that dismissed his behavior. So I just don't think that I'm the one creating a binary. I th like, like I mentioned before, people's decisions put them where they were. I'm not creating any such excuses for them in this moment. I would love to see them step up for democracy and actually explore the truth of what happened on January 6th and not make their own excuses as to why this is somehow a partisan endeavor when it's not. I'm not giving them that talking point. They've already got it. Yeah, I, I want yeah. I want them to be I want I want them to be for democracy. I want them to to work with us in a reasonable way. I don't want them to be obstructionist. I want them to investigate with the commission, with the Democrats. I like I want them to be pro democracy. I don't know. I just don't. I don't really see. I don't really. I just don't really see the binary that's being created here. Republicans got here from their own choices, and now they can't escape because of the rest of society. I don't, I don't. Well, they can't escape because of the influences of their party, right? Like I am exactly. like, I am to a fault to a lot of my progressive friends, very pro bipartisanship, because I think it's the reality of the world that we live in, in the country that we live in, that we have people who agree and yeah. disagree on like very vehemently about certain things. And I think compromise is, is an important part of policy. But I also, as I've stated, think that you must meet issues with where they are at and, and meet the moment not just pursue compromise for the sake of not meeting the moment but like i don't see that from them and take that and and, and the example of that to the infrastructure deal is that we had a 2.3 2.3 trillion dollar infrastructure deal that was that was proposed by the biden administration and through negotiations or lack thereof they re they re proposed a 1.7 trillion dollar infrastructure plan that's down 500 billion dollars and now there's news of the republicans coming with a 1 trillion dollar uh package after their previous 568 like 568 billion dollar package i think it's great that they're moving up to a 1 trillion dollar package to try to meet with this negotiation but also here here they are again sitting in the minority with less power also not like negotiating in good faith because they're not even meeting us at 50%. They aren't even meeting us halfway. They want us to go further towards their end and they want to go to ours at our end and that is not how compromise works especially when you take the power dynamics into play so i'm all for bi bipartisanship but i just don't think that they are interested in, in doing that and i think that their own internal party issues come from their own decisions all right take us on tangent caleb okay everyone so Last night, which we're recording on a Tuesday, so uh, this would be Monday. Last night, I was uh, listening to my hometown city's council meeting for nearly five hours straight. Oh, no. <laughs> so my hometown, I always tell people I'm from Coeur d'Alene, which I pretty much am, but there's this little suburb in its own city named Dalton Gardens that I'm really from. And Dalton Gardens is really defined by most people have one acre or more uh, uh uh, pieces of land and um, it's pretty it's like a rural lifestyle that's how, that's what it used to be like 50 years ago it was mostly agricultural and uh, there's only about maybe 3,000 people at the most that live in kind of in this suburb and and I've grown up there my whole life there's an elementary school in it Dalton Elementary go Dragons woo and <laughs> 
and it, it's been a nice place to live. It's very close to not only the elementary school, but I live a block away, but I'm only like three or four blocks away from both the middle school and the high school that I went to growing up. And nice. it's always been a community that, that people kind of sought after because it doesn't have sidewalks and whatnot. It's, it's pretty rural, but it's also a suburb and people enjoy the quality of life there and everybody's nice or whatever. Well, Boise, nice. Dalton, <laughs> yes. Dalton Gardens has kind of taken a turn over the last few years. Um, my mom was actually a city council member, so I might have a little bit of bias, but um, she was a city council member with some other um, folks um, about a year and a half ago. And before everyone was voted out, including my mom, there was uh, a lot of like, we have some traffic issues from people from Coeur d'Alene going on one of our streets called 4th Street and whatnot. And 4th Street, to just go on a quick rundown, 4th Street needs repairs. It's falling apart. And so City of Dalton Gardens at the time um, applied for a federal grant, but the federal grant was kind of required them to have like sidewalks and whatnot in it. And they were working with them to not have sidewalks in it because people don't want that. They want they keep Dalton the way it is. And this group kind of forms, and this isn't the entire story, but it's a lot of it. This group forms called Save Dalton, and they basically spread this thing that we already accepted the grant, and we're going to have sidewalks, and we're going to become a city. And we're not going to keep that rural lifestyle that everybody wants. You know, spreads this huge lie around. Uh, successfully, about six months before the actual election, successfully recalls, I think it was, it was only two of the four council members in the mayor. So there's only two people left on the council in Idaho state law with quorum and whatnot means that the governor has to appoint at least one other council member. So the governor actually appointed a council member and then the rest of them got voted out when the actual election came on. Um, and the people that were voted in were these save Dalton organizers, a little long winded, but long story short, year and a half later, they've created such a toxic environment that everybody that is paid in the city that isn't a council member has quit. Oh, wow. And the city is at risk for shutting down. And when that happens in Idaho, you can be annexed by other cities. And <laughs> so I listened to almost Wait, like 100 what? comments last night. I think there was like two or 300 people that went to City Hall for this meeting last night, basically asking for three members, the ones that have created the toxic environment, to resign. And before the meeting, um, the mayor and one of the other city council members uh, talked to the Coeur d'Alene Press, the newspaper up there, about how toxic these members were. It's just an absolute disgusting mess. And honestly, none of the – I don't really support any of the council members, but there's three in particular that are especially bad and just cannot seem to understand how government works. It's all about their own self and political agendas that they have. And basically my tangent is that my hometown is a mess and – it's it's weird that like it's a weird microcosm of where I feel like the country is. And I didn't really think that the, a little tiny place that's just a suburb um, that has less than 3000 people in it would just become so divisive and so un, unorderly and unneighborly. And it's just really upsetting to see. Idaho politics continue to confuse me daily. Take us on a tangent, Torrance. So for, for my tangent this week, uh, it is a little more personal. Um, and as a preface to this, I just want to disclose, like I do work at the University of Notre Dame. I am actively and heavily engaged uh, in the diversity, equity, and inclusion work that's being done on campus. Um, and I also am a leading one. Of, I'm a leader on the steering committee for our LGBTQ plus and ally employee resource group on campus. So um, I'm heavily embedded in a lot of these conversations around this issue. Um, but I'm also uh, friends and have worked with on LGBTQ plus inclusion on campus with one of the authors of this of this letter. And um, so over well, today just published, um, actually published yesterday on LinkedIn and then has been picked up by a few websites, um, including Yahoo News, of two Notre Dame MBA students, so Masters of Business um, Administration students, um, chronicling their experience as LGBTQ plus um, members of the community at the MBA school at Notre Dame um, and the institutional discrimination that they faced as leaders of um, the business school's LGBTQ plus and ally group. Um, now, I was very, I was aware of the in, these instances of discrimination when they occurred because I am friends with Eric, one of the authors of this letter. Um, and, and in this letter, they um, write it out of a responsibility to tell LGBTQ 
plus prospective candidates for the MBA school to um, to consider going elsewhere for their MBA experience. And um, I've been really disheartened. I mean, I I know this was the case and I just continue to be really frustrated and disheartened by the situation um, and by this experience of, of my friend and other fellow students at Notre Dame, just because uh, I believe in the work that we're doing there on this front. And, and, and as far as leading the, um, a lot of the conversations around LGBTQ plus inclusion or on campus, um, I have been met with understanding and with with continued opportunity to spread that conversation across campus and to explore um, improving our policies. But I have known and understood that that has been an issue for students versus faculty and staff. That those policies have not been the same and have not, and and comparably the students have not been protected in the same way because so much power exists um, within each of these individual colleges. So like the business school, the law school, etc. Um, and in, in specific moments, our faith, our Catholic faith has been used as justification for not allowing a greater latitude and freedoms for these LGBTQ plus identified groups um, on campus. And uh, I take great issue with that. Um, I take great issue with it just period ever anyone using faith um, as a justification for discrimination or hatred even further. Um, but I have been really embedded in the conversations about our faith, the Catholic church and the LGBTQ plus community and the hypocrisy of um, the discrimination um, based on perceived sins um, and the, uh, the dis- disparate uh, disparate treatment of people based on, on, on sins and the way that we do not uh, in the way that we do not uh, treat other people, populations of, of sinners, quote unquote, um, the same way that we treat perceived the perceived sin of homosexuality. And it really just frustrates me because it is um it's dishonest, it's discriminatory, it's it's hateful. And I really do call on the university as well as specifically the deans um, and the administration at the business school to do better, to um to look it to look inward at uh, the experience that they've created for these students. Um and to not just release statements of platitudes, but to actually explore the opportunities and to access the resources on campus of people doing this work, um, myself and other people I know included, uh, to actually engage in the conversations about ways that they can do better um, and policies that they can institute to actually um, live up to the promise of their spirit of the spirit of inclusion at Notre Dame. Because I know it's possible, um, but I'm disappointed uh, by the way that it's been handled thus far. And with that, take us on a tangent, Terrell. Um, I think my tangent today is really... <laughs> stupid but just how i feel i guess um i've been having some frustrations with cancel culture lately um i really i think it's similar to the conversation we had today about bipartisanship right um well i guess more so about the republican party and the commission but i i've really had issues with how society is handling itself Um, specifically in the growth of cancel culture and just this loose sense of what accountability looks like in the modern era. Um, Because I just, I really struggle to believe that cancel culture works from a space where, or just accountability in the space works when we don't own where society was and what society allowed. And uh, again, maybe it's, fresh in my mind one because of a conversation we had about um takashi whatever his last name is um but also because of this conversation about binaries and parties and all the things i just i feel as though we've entered a a place collectively that is not conducive to a productive society and i don't know if I'm just reading too much into it or if I'm I'm coming from a space that is tunnel visioned. But um, with celebrities like R. Kelly, specifically R. Kelly, that went through a legal trial, that there was a video, all of these things that proved why that individual should not have been supported only for society to turn around and continue to give them chart toppers after chart toppers. And then a documentary comes out in 2019 that results in um, his prosecution and rightful accountability. Where were we as a society before and why are we finally there now? However, when we have individuals like uh, insert name here, 
that's just a random celebrity that does something, all of a sudden it becomes this big thing that we have to end them. I don't know. This is where my brain's at. That's my tangent. I think it's a great tangent. I hate that every echo everything you just said, and I also hate that nobody seems to give grace to people anymore for maybe making a mistake every once in a while. I think that like you know like this, I sometimes think like is a as a result and a confluence of that we went so long without withholding anyone accountable that like once people caught up to and I don't want to say like use political correctness, but like caught up to the truth of our society and privilege and racism and homophobia and, and how not okay. A lot of those things are, and, and, and not just those things, but a, a multitude of the way that we treat other human beings that once we kind of started to agree in the masses that those things were unacceptable. I think that we rushed to judgment on holding everyone accountable on the smallest mm-hmm. in teensy weensy things and tried to be retroactive in a way that like almost no other, like, um, like value or belief system really is right. Like, like, like that we don't just decide, Oh, well, like now that we've decided this, everyone that's ever done it isn't, is in trouble for it, which I just don't think is productive. Like to what you've said, Terrell, but like, I think that it is, it's an important conversation that we should have because we are such fallible humans, all of us that Hmm. if we could keep this up, I don't mean to sound like very right wing when I say this, but who is safe at the end of the day, then who is safe? Well, that's our episode. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week. Wow.